With the rise of social media, we have fewer and fewer hard copies of letters, photos, and other documents. So what happens in the future? Will everything online be preserved? And if so, won't there be too much of it to sort through? Good morning, and welcome to Fordham Conversations. I'm Chris Williams, and today on our show, we're talking about memory and history. How do historians preserve memories, and how can they tell if memories are reliable? I spoke to someone who knows a lot about history to find out some answers. This is Elizabeth Cohane Burbridge, and I'm a doctoral student at Fordham and the producer of Footnoting History. To start out, can you just talk a little bit about your podcast and what you guys do? Yeah, uh, Footnoting History is a podcast of about 10 different historians. Or we all have graduate degrees, at least in history. Uh, many of us who are either current graduate students at Fordham or alums of Fordham. And basically, spending years writing our dissertations, we felt sad for the stories to get relegated to the footnote, if you will. And we decided to start a podcast where shows would be about 10 to 15 minutes in length on just topics that we find interesting from anywhere in history. Uh, we've covered the ancient world, we've covered the medieval world, the modern world, different regions, recent history, we get into it all. So that kind of ties into our topic for today, and we're, we're talking about memory. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about how memory is kind of tied to history? Memory constructs our narrative, the, his, the historical narrative, the stories that we use. And memory can either be oral history, where people literally have their words recorded, for future generations, or it can be more often than not written history, where we work from charters, memoirs, chronicles, anything to try and build up what we think may have happened. An issue with memory, though, is always going to be bias, because everyone has a bias. I have a bias. You have a bias. Everyone has a bias or a view or a take on a story or just how it it occurs to us. So we need to examine for bias, we need to allow for bias, and we need to try and determine if the source can still be used because of the bias. Historians go two ways about this sometimes, or more than two ways, but two main ways can be just trying to still determine if there is a truth that can be used, like for a trial, can you use a lot of the testimony from various people and build up potentially a true account? Or is it more important to wonder what the bias is and what the account is that appears and what that says about the society and what was going on for different people? Isn't it also true that people can have sort of unreliable memories and that they're remembering oh. it differently? Yes. I think um, the quote is that if you ask 100 people, you know, if 100 people see a crime and you ask them each, you'll get 100 different versions. So, yes, we all have very different memories. So. It's like, do you assume that one is more important than the other? Do you rely on one more than the other? Those, those are things that historians tackle every day. Everything we do is about that. And again, it's, just, it's, weighing, it's weighing the bias, who the person is. Is it a young child? Is it an older adult? Uh, is it a person who speaks the language of... You know, is it a person who only speaks English but has seen something happen in France and might not pick up the nuances? Those questions always come through, yes. Can you think of any specific examples of a historical episode where 
memory really played a huge part in sort of determining, well, what actually happened, you know? I think, um, for example, we can consider the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire from 1911, which was a fire that happened in New York City on March 25th at the top of a garment industry building, and 146 people died in the fire, either through smoke, the fire, or falling or jumping to their deaths. And the big question was, were the doors locked? And if they were locked, did the owners know that they were locked, and that's why the people couldn't get out? So, of course, then there's a trial. And the trial is based on the memories of witnesses. And that's where that becomes a main issue of trying to determine. Now, I think most have come down on the side that the doors were locked, but the trial eventually found that the owners were not aware that the doors were locked, that they were not aware of the protocol. But the attorneys for the owners spent a good deal of time with the witnesses asking them the same questions over and over again to try and mess up their recounting or to change their accounting. I suppose mess up right there. That's loaded. can tell where I fall on the side. So try to change their accounting and accuse them of memorizing their account of the situation and then declaring that because the account is memorized, it lacks credibility because it's more like a story that they've learned than an event that they're trying to redescribe. I mean, history is a lie agreed upon, right? Isn't that a saying? Or, you know, history is written by the victors. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we could come up with a lot more. If we think I know. I know. Isn't that, you know, every history teacher starts off classes with those quotes? Yes. It's the 100th anniversary of World War One, and mm-hmm. you had mentioned that during this time people were writing memoirs. So was that kind of the first time that people wrote firsthand accounts of what was happening? It's not the first time, but it becomes very widespread. Mm-hmm. And we have so many of them, and so many of them became published that, and therefore got an even wider audience. You know, we have from England, we have Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves, amongst many others. We have Tales from the Home Front from Britain, Fear of Britain's Testament of Youth. From Germany, we have the novel All Quiet on the Western Front. You know, we work through, or we have so many different personal accounts to work through compared to a couple hundred years ago, there's a diary from the 17th century by Samuel Pepys. It is so used in so many history classes because it's one of the few diaries we have from that period. We don't get written accounts like that, that this man literally for nine years you know, kept a very mundane diary, but it includes details on the Great Fire and the Great Plague that hit London in the period, which, by the way, um, someone has taken Samuel Pepys's diary and Queen Victoria's diary and tweets out 140-character line from them every day. So people go and look for Samuel Pepys and Queen Victoria on Twitter, and you too can learn about their diaries. Again, that diary stands out to us because it's one of a few. But then we get to World War One, and suddenly there are just so many different memoirs. And by World War know, we just get all of these experiences. And today, I mean, think about it. We, we live blog everything. We have everything on social media. Everything is recorded. Everything is recounted. We had the, if you're on Facebook, you just had your 10th year video to tell you about the last 10 years of your life, which this is such new, such almost overwhelming amount of information. 
than we have compared to the past. I remember there was a lecture at Fordham a number of years ago by a historian of Charlemagne, and he was saying that he had looked at every single document relevant to his topic. But then he paused and said, but I can, because there just aren't that many. I'm not writing about Vietnam. You know, I don't have hundreds of thousands of documents about my topic. So I can say I have looked at every surviving document that relates to this topic. And I think today we have so much that it's almost, it's almost hard to process. Just going back a little bit, I want to ask, why do you think that history kind of went from that more detached observer mode to the more personal accounts? You know, why, why were there more personal accounts during World that, War I? That is a great question. Um, honestly, I think it's just it's an increase in literacy. It's an increase in surviving records because there's a, there's a work, this is going back very far to the Middle Ages, but there's a work called For Memories for Written Record, which discusses how people move from oral proof in, say, a land disagreement to written proof. And it talks about the rise of literacy and how in the old days you would find the oldest guy in the village and ask him what he remembered his grandfather telling him. And that would be your proof. That memory would stand for you as your proof. But today, we all rely on records. That's where the power now lies. The power lies in who has the charter that says this land belongs to X. Even in the modern world, we find a lack of records. My, my father is a genealogist. We were over in Ireland. He was, we were driving around the countryside talking to various older family members. And they would stop them and they'd say, I mean, these are 80-year-old people. And they would say, well, no, 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 we don't want to know about your grandfather. Try and remember what your grandfather told us about his grandfather. And so I think that even in World War I, we suddenly get this burst of literacy and this rise of people really focusing on their own memories, writing letters home, because people at home could read them or could find someone in the village to read to them. You know, getting letters from them because someone in the unit could read. Then people keeping memoirs because, again, they were, they were literate, they were educated, and they would just write down details about their lives. And that there was also a shift to thinking that the details about our lives had importance. And I don't think they were doing it to create a historical record. Uh, some said that they wanted to write things down so that everyone would remember what happened there. But others, I think, were really just writing about their lives and feeling that it had some merit to write about their lives, to try and explain their lives, to try and process what they were experiencing. More people were actually doing it rather than we just have more surviving documents. Well, we also, yeah, I think more people were writing letters, um, and we just also have more surviving documentation. I mean, that's always going to be the answer. So right now... We just we have a lot of records, but yeah, more people were definitely able to write and to record than would have been in previous. This is Chris Williams on WFUV ninety point seven, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations. Today we're talking about history and memory. 
Elizabeth Cohane Burbridge talks about the intersection of memory and history and how this might affect the future. You made a really nice point before about social media and how we kind of put everything about our lives online or mm-hmm. maybe not everything, but a lot of stuff. Do you think that stuff is going to be there? You know, like if someone writes something on a yeah. message board, is that going to be there in 50 years? Is well, there I always wonder that because the technology shifts so quickly, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have videotapes for when we were young. But, you know, my father sat there with a massive video camera. And so we have videotapes, which, well, no one has a VCR to play them anymore. So one of my brothers converted them to DVDs. But at some point, you know, you have to keep converting information. If everything's online, well, we have computers from the early 80s that if we boot up, you know, you can't transfer that information to another computer because they don't speak to each other. And you have to find different processes, again, to try and convert and try to save. But what if the power goes out, then all those records are lost? That's all gone. So I do wonder, um, how much of it do we want to retain? Yeah, exactly. Because, again, how much do we have time to sift through, you know, me writing LOL on a friend's wall? Mm-hmm. Is that is that really something that's going to stand out for us? But, yeah, that is an, it's an excellent question. The, the issue of social media, how we have so much information, is that information worth retaining? And how can we retain all of it if it is? Yeah, and it's, it's so different than it just would. It just seems so easy to me that we would have hard copies of things like, you know, a physical photograph, mm-hmm. you know, a written mm-hmm. letter like that stuff seems mm-hmm. for some reason to kind of survive and be preserved and documented and archived. But things like Facebook, you know, someone tagged me in a picture. Yeah. Where's mm-hmm. that going to be like? You know, are, yeah. am I going to sit down with my kids and instead of having a photo album, I show them my Facebook? Like, right. How do we no. preserve memory, you know? Back in the Middle Ages, we wrote on uh, parchment, which was literally made out of animal hide. So that stuff is tough. Like, when you go places, you can actually, it's, that is the surviving parchment. Parchment is tough. Paper is really easily destroyed. You know, you get paper wet, and it starts coming apart. You get parchment wet, and... Not much happens to it. So we've already moved to our devices of record being more easily ruined or destroyed or lost. And then we don't even print them out on paper anymore. But I have, I also have photo albums on Facebook. How many of those have I actually printed out, you know, and framed and done anything to show anyone in the future? So will they be saved? How will they be saved? And everyone, yes, we're all supposed to back up things on our hard drive. But, again, nobody's printing them out. So, yeah, we have these mementos in museums, but then it seems like none of us are really trying to create them today. One thing I, I just, just kind of popped into my head, you know, mm-hmm. getting back to this, thinking about what history will be like in the future, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like, are we going to go to a museum and they'll have someone's old cell phone? That'll be like, they'll keep it charged and you can like go through it and see their emails and stuff. Yeah. Or, you know, that's my, that's my Kindle. That's my iPod. That's my iPad. Uh-huh. Like what are, what are people, well, how are we going to charge? I mean, it's, it's going to be insane. Cause think when we go to museums today and we see old technology mm-hmm. in the museum, um, which, you know, varies from farming equipment to say an old, like a brownie camera, one of the original cameras or a typewriter. Yeah, is it going to be, you know, the first Apple computer with, like, a light shining down on it? Or, yeah, how 
how are museums going to figure out modern, how to relay our modern lives, which of course won't be modern anymore. Um, museums of the future, those will be interesting. So before we started talking for this interview, you talked a little mm -hmm. bit about, you had done a podcast episode about the Berlin Wall and, and memory? Yeah, um, actually, well, our podcaster, Kirsty Norris, did it mm -hmm. um, on the Berlin Wall and memory. And she talked about how, first of all, it thinking about memory is one of the reasons she became a historian, because she realized that every day, just by living, we are all living history. We are all experiencing what will become history, what will become part of the narrative. And so she, in her podcast on the, the Berlin Wall, took what, for, for many of us, is still an event that we remember in our lifetime, well, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the building of the Berlin Wall is a, events that many still actually remember, and tried to take stories that people have told her about them and record those so that they don't just go off and disappear and are forgotten, like probably billions of stories have been about various events. And we, um, first of all, it's a great podcast, so if anyone's listening, then Berlin Wall memory. But secondly, it's just, it's so important to consider these ideas of oral history, because even though we do see ourselves writing so much down and recording so much on social media, there are older people who are not as involved but they still have stories, and they still live through things, and we now have that technology to literally walk up to them, hand them a recorder, and ask them just to speak into it about what they remember about their childhood. In South Africa, there was an attempt in various areas to do just that, to get recordings of living through apartheid, because we can. And so I think Kirstie's podcast really helps drive home the importance of using as many stories as possible to help feed into and interpret the narrative of our, our joint memory. Because so many of us have joint memories. How many of us, for, well, when I was growing up, the example was always the Challenger explosion. How many people remembered watching it as it happened? And I know for my parents' generation, the question always was, where were you when you heard JFK died? And these become communal memories. You bring them up, and people all have a story. And even though I just, I just mocked social media and said, do we really need to record all that? For these, everyone has a story. Everyone has a different interpretation. Everyone has slightly varying memories. And it's just it's very interesting to group them all together and try to get a whole picture. If, you know, the famous question, if aliens showed up on the planet tomorrow and asked you about your civilization, you know, would you have 100 people say, well, this is what I remember about 9-11? You know, what would those stories tell? What would that be? Which I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it would, be, it would be interesting. So this might sound like a really almost deep question, but as a historian, what do you see the value in collecting all these stories and all these memories and, and kind of trying to preserve them? For thousands of years. History was seen as the great men of history. And what I mean is that usually men, occasionally women, but were seen as the drivers and forces of history. So if you studied history up until a certain part of the 20th century, basically, but if you studied history up until then, you know, you learned about uh, Alexander the Great, 
Julius Caesar, Queen Elizabeth, and George Washington. It was about the top, top, top percent of people who really did things. And we didn't talk as much about the people on the ground, the people, as I always say, that I probably descended from, the peasants. And what we have today is to actually, so when we try to look into the past, we literally have to look into gaps. You know, in order to find out what a life of a peasant was like, we look at tax records to see what people of certain jobs made. Then we look at prices of food to see what that food cost, to see what they could afford to buy, to see what their cost of living was. That's how we find out about social history in the past. But today, we can literally walk up to someone and say, what is this like? And they can inform future generations first, because so many of us are literate, so we can write down our experiences. And secondly, because we do have the capabilities to literally record voices. And to me, that is so invaluable because it, it gives an added dimension to history, a much-needed added dimension to history. Instead of just trying to piece together the past of most people, we can actually be given information about that. And it's interesting that you, you talk about it like that because I'm just thinking of going through school and, and you know, middle school and all that. You're, we're kind of taught history. Okay, like this is what happened. Here are the facts and the dates. But then mm -hmm. I realized, you know, in college, we started talking more about, okay, but this is what life was like for a, an ordinary right. person during this mm -hmm. time period. So do you think that maybe history has been almost too concerned with things, I guess, that we could say are objective, but maybe not even that, because as we talked about. I, I think there was a desire to be objective. I think for a long time also, there was, first of all, we had evidence for the leaders. You know, we had written accounts or laws by them, and because they were famous, we have the life of Alexander the Great. We have different versions of the life and death of Alexander the Great. So we had so much evidence that we could use to try and come up with what happened or who he was like or what battles he fought in. And so I think for a long time the evidence was just there. So it made the evidence that we had made those people seem, well, I, mean, I mean, they were important, but it made them seem like history. That was history. And then we came up with a story. We call it the historical narrative and the changes. But, so we came up with a story that explains history, and it explains it you know, from point A to B to C, which are usually different men and sometimes women who have done important things. And now I know that some people would say that is more objective history because we do have the direct evidence, although then you always have to, again, deal with bias because somebody liked that leader, somebody didn't. Who's writing the life? We don't know. Or you have to figure it out from that. But I think now we've started to realize, especially in the, in the 20th century, in the 19th and 20th centuries, it started coming through the idea that there's more to history. And in a way, um, it started by dealing with the question of just being aware of different groups of people and that different groups of people can cause changes. In the late 19th century, we get the progressive movement which is largely middle class, this is in America, which is largely middle class. And they don't bring on changes, especially by the early 20th century, and, but they're not one person. There are many different people 
comprised of one group. And I think that starts opening eyes to the fact that different groups might be important, might have humanity, and then it becomes a question of how do we discover it. And that's where you started getting interviews, census records of everyone that comes through, which, well, we already had census records for tax purposes, for various things, but census records get start being used for different purposes. And I think, yeah, I think, for instance, the 19th and 20th centuries, the issues of who the historical story should tell have expanded greatly. And there are those who would argue that it's no longer objective because a lot of people do have, you know, we have our pet groups, if you will, that we, we like to talk about. But to be honest, I don't think history is ever objective because we all always have our pet issues or topics. So, again, I think you just have to be aware of whatever the historian's objective is and work from there. I think we, we kind of talked about this before, but I'm going to ask it mm -hmm. again. Do you think we're running the risk, though, of, of gathering too much information so that it's almost impossible to sort through? Right. Anders Vinroth, who um, won a MacArthur grant a number of years ago now, for writing a book on Gratian's decretum. So Gratian was sort of an unknown figure, but in the 12th century, put together all the canon law codes of the European church and organized them for people to study. And Anders went through and discovered that there was actually his, Gratian's original work was much shorter and that people added on as the years went and he realized there was what everyone thought was the original Gratian's Decretum was not. And he pointed out in a talk that if he had literally sat there, say, with you know, the search engine and said, search for this term, he never would have realized it because he wouldn't have seen the forest for the trees. And we do have that problem. On one hand, we have this technology that is great, that, you know, I can pull up. So much stuff is online now. I can pull it up and search for a term, and I can find all 100 instances of that term, and I can read through and see what it's talking about. But what if I miss something else? What if something is misspelled? You know, all of these different things come in, and one doesn't know. So I do worry that the technology, that all the information that we do have will make it harder to construct a future narrative, because how can you look at everything? There's no physical way. Even if you, like, choose the most minute topic, I can't even imagine how one would collect all of the information from this modern age. question that we got in graduate school by one of our professors, which was just, we were all sitting around the table, and Richard Jukes, who's in the history department, asked us all to remember our first world event, not our first family memory, if you will, or local memory, but our first global event. And so we all sat there and tried to come up with, you know, the earliest thing we could all remember that would have impacted on a national or global level. I remembered watching the Iran-Contra hearings on the TV, uh, but I think that that really drives home just how much memory really plays in, because 
when we're so little, the first memories we think of, well, we barely even know there's a world outside us. And then we get into it, and yet even people within the same age range have different first global memories because different things feed into us. So even though we think that there are topics that really stand out, uh, I always say to my students that I describe how when I was young, I was always afraid at night that I would go to sleep and there would be nuclear war. And that would be it. The world would be destroyed. And my students, who many of them have now been born since the fall of the Berlin Wall, have no idea what I'm talking about. Because why would you fear that? But then I point out that I remember a world that did not have AIDS. When I was little, well, there was AIDS, but it wasn't that epidemic level yet. It hadn't reached that national awareness, I suppose I should say, level yet of what was going on. And so we just have these very different worlds. And yet within such a short amount of time, because, you know, less than a decade between events, and yet so much changes. There are places I remember Thanks to Elizabeth Cohane Burbridge for joining us this week. For more info about the Footnoting History podcast, visit their website, footnotinghistory.com. Boredom Conversations will be back next Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you've missed a show. They're all available to download as a podcast or stream online at WFUV.org. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Stay tuned. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.